Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunane Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 10 of the podcast, the topic is the future of elderly care. Our guest is Ken Accardi, CEO and founder of Ancoda. Ken, great to speak with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you today? Yeah, it's another great day, actually. Um, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, every day seems to kind of float together these days. So you kind of have to celebrate the small, the small differences. How, uh, you know, how, how is it with you? No, it's really, it's really going well. I mean, we do have beautiful weather in Boston at this time of the year in July. And uh, that's something to celebrate. Of course, it's been a pretty tricky time for everybody with with COVID. And uh, we're blessed to, you know, have everybody be healthy uh, in that situation. And, you know, we're coping like everybody else and trying to make the best of it. That sounds great. So Ken, before we uh, get into our topic, I wanted to chat for a few seconds. You have uh, an extremely interesting background. I was fascinated. You've spent 14 years at G Healthcare, uh, if I counted correctly. Uh, and you know, you're, you're now the CEO of Ancoda. We'll talk about it's a software company in the domain of home, home healthcare. And you're also an adjunct faculty at, at Babson. Tell me, you know, in, in all of these experiences and others, uh, what are some of the most, uh, the experiences that have taught you the most? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. I really have enjoyed places where we're innovating. Uh, the most. So, for example, I, I've spent most of my career in healthcare, but I took a little sidetrack. I worked for a company that is one of the two companies in the world, really, that makes the maps used in GPS navigation. And when I worked there, it was a time when uh, really car navigation, you know, really Google Maps wasn't a thing yet. And people were just starting to get things like TomToms and Garmin devices in their car. And it's really just fun to be part of that and then see it, you know, really become mainstream. And, uh, you know, just another quick story, I, early in my career at, at GE Healthcare, the way that uh, I worked in the x-ray division and the way that you take an x-ray essentially involved at that time, a uh, like a TV camera. So you really have this doctor who's trying to do a cardiology procedure around the table, and he's encumbered by this huge TV camera type of device. And at that time, uh, it was a project that some of my team members worked on, actually my wife worked on, to make a flat panel x-ray detector that's more like the size of a pizza box instead of the size of an old school TV camera. And I've been out of uh, GE Healthcare for a while, but when you see something like that, you know, everywhere you see an x-ray machine now, that's what they have. And I remember those first prototypes cost millions of dollars. And, and now it's, you know, just something that's part of every x-ray machine. So I, I think that really the things that have been the most exciting thing for me is when we were the first to innovate in an area and then uh, saw it become mainstream. That's, that's great. That's really cool. Well, you've, you've moved on from, from big companies now. Um, what would you say was the reason that you kind of started to explore startup uh, activity or, you know, had you always had a passion for building something of your own or was it more haphazard that you got into the business of, of starting a company? 
Well, I wouldn't say it was really haphazard, but one of the things I did uh, at GE was we figured out a way to remotely diagnose problems with our uh, digital equipment. And GE Healthcare at the time was mostly x-ray machines, CAT scans, MRI, that type of thing. And, and we came up with technology. This was, I'm really dating myself here, but the early days of the internet, and we figured out how to connect into machines and figure out what was wrong with the machine before we sent a person to go fix it. And that was when I was working on x-ray machines. And this innovation was strong and profound. And I actually was given a job from there. I became the uh, chief information officer for the service division of the company because we were able to revolutionize how we did field service. And what came with that was the business management systems for the service division. So we had to you know, take calls and have service contracts and do spare parts logistics and things like that. And at the time, I had worked with a small Israeli consulting company who had built some software in that arena. And they actually recruited me to, to leave GE. They wanted to change themselves from an Israeli software company to a Boston-based uh, software company. And they asked if I'd be part of the team. So that's when I moved to Boston. And we IPO'd that company. And uh, we, we've just loved Boston. But, uh, but since then, I you know, went from, a, at the time, about a $140 billion company to a you know, $3 or $4 million company. And I really did enjoy just the empowerment you get working in an entrepreneurial environment. And, uh, and that inspired me to go get my MBA at Babson, which is a entrepreneurship focused, uh, MBA program. And then that also gave me the, the tools and the confidence to start my own company. Got it. So let's, let's jump into it. So the, the, the social challenge of, of elderly care is really quite a, it's a striking societal challenge. I mean, on, you know, on this podcast, we explore the, really big challenges that our future holds for for society, uh, not just in technology, but just overall. This seems to be almost like an un- insurmountable challenge. I mean, it's a massive amount of people that are going to need care in, in the years ahead, differing, you know, between different societies, but certainly in the U.S. where we both are right now. It, I mean, I have some numbers that we can go through, but there's something like uh, 46 million older adults right now, but by 2050, that number is going to double, right? I mean, that, that, these are staggering figures. How, how is this system even going to cope with that? And what, what will that mean for a society, even just that increase? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic metric. I actually like to focus on a slightly different metric, which is people over 80 years old. So one, uh, you know, we talk about it as a maybe insurmountable challenge and challenges drive innovation, but I look at it as, uh, as a very empowering opportunity. So today, yeah. so first of all, today's elderly people are not our grandparents' elderly people. When they set the retirement age to 65 in the U.S., the average life expectancy of a man in the U.S. was till around 70 or 71 years old. And now men are living in the U.S. till around 85 years old and, and women are approaching 90 with the average age. I actually read an article uh, a few years back that said if you were born in the 2000s, you have a 50-50 chance of leaving, living to 100. So wow. it's, it's really, you know, it, it, it is uh, exciting and insurmountable almost uh, from one perspective. But I guess the number I look at is 
I really look at where does somebody need care, and uh, the, the so a metric that I like to look at is people who are over eighty years old. And here yep. in 2020, we have around 13 million people who are over the age of 80 in the U.S. But uh, using you know your same time frame, uh, 2050, we expect that number to go to 35 million. So not quite tripling, but really a vast uh, growth in in that you know, demographic. So it, it is it is really something that's staggering. But I look at it as an opportunity. I think it's an underserved area and a great place for entrepreneurship and innovation. That That's exciting. I mean, th the other side of that coin, right, is um, we all want to live well. So uh, the theory would be that not only are we going to live longer, but we will live healthier lives longer. So, I mean, do you foresee, for instance, in that time frame, given what you know with, you know, the kinds of technologies and approaches you see coming into the, the home care or healthcare market overall, are we going to live healthy lives uh, at 80 plus in, uh, you know, in the years ahead? And, and what are the factors that would decide whether we are going to live substantially healthier lives uh, or not? Well, that's a, another fantastic question. Interestingly, I've read articles that make the counterpoint that although we have people living a lot longer, that they're not quite as healthy. Because if you look at a lot of the, the innovations in medicine, you know, in our lifetimes, the uh, what we now call chronic diseases used to kill people, right? So now people can live uh, long and healthy lives with things like diabetes and um, and and other conditions that used to kill them in the past. So in in a sense, uh, medicine's done a really good job of of sustaining life. And then the question of you know quality life of life comes in. And it's a slightly different question, but what's what's very interesting is that you know the if you compare eighty year olds, there's very different eighty year olds. There's some who uh, you would look at them and say, oh well, that, I, I'd imagine they're sixty, and then there's some that you would look at and say, you know, that, that they they look like they're a hundred. So um, so I think that really we we live in a world where there's great opportunities for you know, for living healthy and productive and, and great lives. And, but it is sort of interesting, you know, just to go a little bit counter to your question that uh, a lot of people are living with, you know, the issues that go with, um, with diabetes and, and, you know, overweight and those types of, uh, of scenarios as well. Okay. So that brings, uh, uh, that brings a care challenge, which is where you you come in, and and you must have thought thought a, a bit about you know quality of life and and care and what that what that means. To give us a, a sense of uh, how it is to operate in in the home care market, and we'll, we'll get into what the home care market, a home healthcare market looks like, and you know, uh, you know, but but give us just a sense of how it is to operate in there. You you're passionate about it for one. Why are you so passionate about it? Well, uh, so first of all, it's. I, there's been a lot of surveys where people are asked what they fear and elderly people have come out and they say they don't fear death as much as they feel as, as much as they fear being confined in a nursing home. Right. And so if you think about having a life where you could live, you know, in the comfort of your own home, you know, with the surroundings and, and things that you become uh, accustomed to, that's great. And even more now that we're, we're kind of in this era of COVID-19, 
it's really become even more and more pronounced. And the idea of living in a group home or a nursing home kind of setting is, is even more concerning now than it has been in the past. So I, I really do think that if people have the opportunity to, to live and age in place in their home, that that is, is one of the formulas for you know, a blessed life. And uh, so that's, I would say, why I'm passionate about it and, and even more doubling down on that now that uh, we've experienced something like COVID-19. Well, uh, let's get to that as well. But uh, I wanted to, to uh, you know, and some of the challenges with, with the strategy of living at home. Um, but first of all, uh, how big is the proportion of all of those people that are in this category that potentially could live at home? What, what is right now in the U.S., just to take one uh, statistic, like how, how many are actually exploiting this opportunity to, to do home health care versus, you know, going to a home? And, you know, how, how is, has this trend um, evolved? Yeah, so the reason I brought up that statistic of people who are over 80 is that a good metric is that around two-thirds of the people over 80 today are recipients of some type of home care. And it could be just a small amount, uh, somebody coming in a couple days a week to help with a few things. And it, or it could be, you know, live in around the clock care. Yeah. And, but I think that is a, a good proxy for the market is about two thirds of the population over 80 needs uh, home care. And I guess the indicator for that is what we actually, it's not really a health question, but it's, it's more what we call activities of daily living. So the indication for when you are starting to need care is when you need help with things like your nutrition, hygiene, uh, and to some degree, socialization and, and those types of, of areas. When you can't take care of yourself in those arenas, that's when you start to need home care. Got it. So, so those are the needs. And, and um, can you paint a picture of w what this home care market looks like? I've, I picked up some reports. I don't know if they are the best ones, but you know, it's obviously because of the numbers we were talking about, it, it is a growing market, right? So, I mean, <clears throat> presumably, uh, it is an attractive market to enter, or would you say it's a difficult market to enter? Because, you know, famously, most healthcare markets have a lot of providers there already. So it can't be very easy for a startup to kind of make their, uh, make their way. And there are all the other challenges as well on the regulatory side that we'll get to in a second. Uh, how would you say, uh, you know, is it, is it an attractive space for a startup to kind of move into that kind of a, of a regulated but growing market and, you know, thriving lots of opportunity, very significant and important, uh, you know, quest as well. So it's meaningful. But uh, it, but it can't be easy, right? Yeah, it's definitely not an easy market, and it's not. It it is economically a t a tricky thing. So let's say that we want to pay caregivers a living wage of fifteen dollars an hour, and then we want to be able to afford to run a business based on that, and look at our office needs and our training needs and staffing needs and the supervisory nurses and things like that. There's a, a metric in the industry that says that about 55% of your revenue should be spent on the caregiver cost, and then another 45% would be your, your other office and overhead costs. So, so bottom line is, if you are providing home care and paying a living wage of $15 an hour, you need to charge around $30 an hour. 
And if you think about uh, a 40 hour a week job, if somebody worked 30 hours in a 40 hour a week job, that's $60,000 a year. And most families and individuals can't afford that. So there's a lot of pressure on the profitability of this market. But really, the biggest uh, concern in the market is that there's, while we have this growth in the elderly population, we also have a a shortage and a shrinkage in the amount of available caregivers. So that's the biggest challenge facing yep. the industry. Okay, so that's the biggest challenge. Why don't you uh, move in to tell, tell us a little bit about what Uncoda, your, your company does in this market, what, what the opportunity is that you saw and what exactly, what kind of service are you providing in the home healthcare market? Yeah, thanks for asking that. We make a essentially a practice management software for a home care business. And the best way just to have everybody understand it is when you go to your doctor's appointment, they were able to make that appointment and get your health insurance and get your credit card and schedule you and schedule the doctor and manage that and you know bill for it and get the reimbursement. And that's essentially what we do for a home care agency, but it's a little bit different because of the challenges of, of geography and uh, having people go to people's homes and to a degree, uh, a lot of it is is day service, but there's also some needs for around the clock service and seven day week service. But really, that's what Ancoda is. It's a software for managing a home care business and it manages their clients, their care plans, their schedules, their timekeeping, billing, payroll, uh, the whole nine yards. Got it. Well, that's, uh, you know, it sounds like it's a it's a good thing for this market to get those kinds of tool because it's you know it it is slightly bewildering situation you're dealing with different locations and you know you're moving around it would also seem to be really ripe for some kind of technology and i've seen some startups that have tried to be more matchmaking type platforms even for this market to try to uh, maybe even uh, make greater use of uh, of kind of freelancers in 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 home care and and that kind of thing, and also enable choice because uh, I mean, and that's the kind of the holy grail overall in in healthcare, right? To 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 achieve greater value and connection to kind of the value of what's being pr provided versus sort of being being stuck with kind of providers that are just provided by a system where you can't really. Uh, influence it very much, and there are all of these terms in this market. I don't know what they, how much they matter, but patient-driven payment model is something I came across. What, what what is the impact of that? What what is that term, and why does it matter? Yeah, so I'm just going to be candid with you. I'm not that familiar with that term, so I'm not seeing that one on a daily basis. But I, I would like to go on, you know, just back to a couple of things that you uh, that you you talked about. So finding the right caregiver is uh, is an important thing. So a big part of the software that we have is how do we find somebody who's geographically preferable for this person, but also has a good match with other things, uh, speaks the same language and might have some similar interests. And also, uh, you know, if the individual needing care has pets or is a smoker, that might be a, a prohibitive type of thing. So the matching is a big part. But, you know, just looking at, uh, you know, as I explained the expense of this, I mean, if we think about we wanted to provide care for, let's say, a, a grandparent of ours. And we say, well, 
$30 an hour and we need somebody seven days a week, I mean, that could be 60 or $80,000 a year. So a lot of people can't afford that. So what happens is that uh, the, the market is sort of a bipolar market. Very wealthy people uh, contract for, for home care and have a lot of hours of care. And very poor people are able to get home care services uh, through Medicaid. And the reason for that is that uh, the state Medicaid program say, well, if I'm going to put this person in a nursing home, it'll cost me sixty dollars to $70,000 a year. Whereas if I send a caregiver for just a couple hours a day, that might cost me more like $12,000 a year. And then the typical family is... You know, we see the the scenario where grandma comes and lives back with uh, the adult daughter, and uh, you know, or if they live close, that the family is providing a lot of the care, and then they're supplementing with a little bit of care on the outside. So, it, you know, it is there is a lot of demand uh, for the market. Well, it's a market, though. I imagine that is very complicated to navigate around, isn't it? I mean, there's very little, or here I'm just inserting an opinion. I don't know. The information transparency, if you are, let's say you either are the person that's seeking the care or even you are a stakeholder, you know, you're a caregiver in, in, in the circle around it. It's, it's your mother, it's your father. And you're trying to design a care solution as you're realizing that your uh, loved one needs uh, a better care. How do you, on a practical level, go about do that, doing that? And, and would you say that, that there is insufficient information around for someone who comes in green, you know, landing from a different country and just has to navigate this market and, and find the solution, the evolving needs also, right? Because, you know, a person changes perhaps quite rapidly as they're aging. Uh, how do you even go about right now? Like, what, what is your advice? Where do you, where do you go? Uh, I mean, can you go to Encoda and find answers to all these questions about uh, e even just as an individual, you know, where where the provision uh, is? Well, it's a great question. And you wouldn't come to Encoda for this because we're really providing to the providers of care and our yeah, so information is right. So we're kind of more in the back yeah. office. But there, there's a lot of resources that you can seek. And you talked about matchmaking services. So there's uh, even here in the Boston area, there's care.com and there's, there's other places and there's uh, I've seen TV commercials, a place for mom and things like this. So there are things out there, but let's, let's take a step back from even home care for a moment. So what is, you know, more elderly care and there are choices. And, and as soon as I bring that up, I'm sure everybody listening has a mental picture of something in their life because we all experience this. So you're always thinking of, hey, this was the time that grandma came and lived with our family. Or, oh, I remember when I you know, started going to my uncle's house that uh, there was a caregiver there. Or, uh, or perhaps they, they did move into assisted living. And they, you know, so instead of that home that they lived in, they moved only a couple miles away, but now they're in you know, more of a, an apartment style living in a place where they provide meals for them. And some of those are what's called a continuing care retirement community. So you can move into a place where you start with independent living or assisted living. And then, but they also have nursing care services and things like that. So really, this is the, the spectrum of choices that, uh, that, that somebody would have uh, when they're experiencing it. But to get to your specific question, 
nobody's really prepared for this. And what usually happens is there's some event that drives the need for you to arrange care for a loved one. And, and oftentimes it's that, you know, maybe they fell and they injured a hip. And so, you know, so we're here in Boston and then, you know, mom's, let's say in Florida and you get the call that mom has fallen and she's injured her hip and she's in the hospital. So, you know, you uh, generally fly to Florida or in COVID-19, you might jump in the car and you're, you're driving to Florida and you're, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I have to take care of mom, but I also have to get back to my job. And how is, how are all these things going to happen? And that's the time in everybody's life when they really start figuring it out. And so I guess a piece of advice for everybody is, is, you know, have discussions with your elderly parents, grandparents, and that type of thing about, you know, what their preferences would be and what they've seen uh, when you know, their friends have aged and, and what, what kind of options have, have worked well for them. And if you could start building any of those ideas of what, you know, what this person wants for care and where they might consider care early, that's really smart. But again, most people don't do that and they, uh, they deal with it, you know, when that time of need arises. That's true. Well, why don't we open the aperture even further? So we've, we've zoomed in kind of from, uh, zoomed out, I guess, from, from kind of home care to elderly care overall. But if you look at the, the future of elderly care provision and, and what, you know, w- what will happen in that space? Uh, what are some of your thoughts? Where, where is this going? Who, who are going to be the providers? What are going to be the main types of care that are going to, kind of win out as, as the more popular options. I mean, are you thinking that uh, home care is the ultimate winner for and the answer for, for all these scenarios in the next few years? Uh, and if so, what are the reasons for that? Or, or would you say it's going to be a mix of assisted living? There are still going to be, you know, perhaps ways that you can establish elderly care center that, that are top-notch and that really provide a, a community function, perhaps, that others can't. And how, how do you see this evolving like in the next decade? Yeah, fantastic question. And there, there's so much to it. So, uh, so cut me off and we could go in, in directions as, as you see. But I think the first thing that'll happen, and we've seen some of this, is that we're going to want to figure out how people can live independently longer. And to that end, we have certain things have evolved already, whether they be, you know, chairlifts and ramps and um, services like Meals on Wheels, where maybe they're, they're not able to go to the grocery and buy things uh, the way that they would wish to and right. things like that. So we would see meals coming in and we see things like pill dispensers. So there's definitely going to be more and more innovation in those areas. But if we kind of jump further, there's also a lot of innovation starting now in the area of robotics. And uh, there's, there's many different types of robots. So the first one is uh, social robots, where the elderly person has uh, a device that generally they could talk to and, and get answers and you know, even ask to you know, be connected to their, their granddaughter to go talk on the, on the phone. Do you see like some that. promise in that, Ken? Or would you well, I do. I mean, that hyped I, up? I think that it is a little bit hyped up in, I, you know, I, I think if we look at the social robot, I, I sort of have this theory that, you know, most things that are invented eventually become part of your smartphone. And 
So interestingly, as I mentioned, when I was in the mapping company and everybody had a Garmin in their car, well, nobody has a Garmin in their car anymore because everybody has Google Maps and that sort of thing. So I think that if we look at the platforms that are going to win, it's going to be the smartphone and things like the Amazon Echo Dot uh, will be you know, the platforms and these will be applications on the platforms when you get into the, the social robotics aspect of things. And is that because you just think it's too hard to put new devices and form factors into people's houses that, that only have a single function? I mean, aren't you then kind of shooting your own field in the foot? I mean, isn't it uh, <laughs> also possible that some of these social robots can have so many functions that are very specific maybe to, to health that they're actually useful in and of themselves? Or do you think that's just too hard to create and, and you're saying the big tech will, will win? Is that your big, big company background speaking to you uh, about how hard it is to launch hardware solutions? Or is it sort of just more a notion of kind of consumer tech wins, uh, wins out no matter what? Because I mean, this is of course the truth. Most of these robotics companies uh, apart from the big providers, right? They they have a like you said a one trick pony, right? Well, if we think uh, you know about how we all had predecessors to you know today we either have an iPhone or an Android phone, but we all had some predecessors whether it was you know, the BlackBerry or the the BlackBerry type phones and and various things like that. But ultimately, certain platforms went out. But I think that in evolving any type of technology, what you see is that you know, somebody's got to build it the first time. That's going to be very hard and very expensive. And then people will learn how to mass produce it. And then ultimately, they'll figure out how to miniaturize it. And it'll become part of the consumer devices that we have. So I, I guess if I look at the examples I gave, one being the, the phone and the other one being something like the Echo Dot. The Echo Dot today uh, is is generally something that you only talk to and listen to. whereas there have been experiments in social robots. There was one that was pretty famous um, that was called Jibo. And it was it looked kind of like an Echo Dot, but it had this um, camera and screen combined. So it, would, it could kind of turn around and follow you, and you could speak to it in any direction, and it could show you pictures in any direction and take your picture and various things like that. So I think that there, there could be some evolution where... Uh, the where where there will be platforms that have this, but ultimately, I think the innovators will build custom hardware devices. But ultimately, uh, they will, you know, as as markets grow, they'll they'll become you know less expensive and and become more part of the the standard platforms that we have in the home. Yeah, I interrupted you. You were about to tell me about different types of robots and other types of technologies, and we only got to social robots. What were some of the other things you were thinking of? Yeah, for sure. So people are working on uh, mobility robots. They're working on humanoid robots. Interestingly, Japan, which historically has uh, a longer term planning threshold, has done a lot of research in in robots for caring for the elderly. And if you if you Google that, you'll see some some very funny looking robots. Uh, but but there is a lot of you know a lot of innovation in the robotic space, and that. Uh, type of thing. I, I believe that really um, there are going to be certain things that where you need another human being to help you. I mean, it, it's going to be really hard to equip uh, a home with a robot that can help get you in and out of the bathtub and and things like that. So I, I think that if we look at the macro 
picture of things that we'll see a lot more devices and robots uh, will emerge. And we'll, we'll see that basically care is going to have to be something where instead of a one-on-one care model where a caregiver is with a client, uh, you know, somebody needing care all day long, that we'll see instead that they are uh, spending shorter amounts of time. And I believe that things will move in a direction of population health where there will be uh, a lot of a lot of things will emerge. So the health system will monitor people remotely and be more predictive about when they need help. And they will send people for help or bring those people into care centers uh, when they need them. And, and that type of, of uh, evolution will happen. But, you know, ultimately I see great networks of people. Uh, you know, another big issue we haven't talked about is social isolation. And while um, a lot of us have found, especially in this COVID time, that we could spend a lot of time playing words with friends on our phone and watch more Netflix and that type of thing. Uh, I, I do think that the, the problem of social isolation will be a big problem, but I also think it's going to be, uh, there's, there's going to be lots more solutions as we get older because your future elderly person living today, they, they have an iPhone, they know how to talk to their friends, they know how to do a Zoom conference and, and that type of thing. So I think that a lot of the companionship will be among their friends, even if they are uh, physically distanced, that they'll still be able to uh, socially connect through these types of devices. And I think as far as, you know, home care, my industry being a winner, I think that it will be a winner because of the, the growing demand. But I think it'll look very different where instead of the typical model today where one caregiver is working with one client, I think we'll see a lot more day center care where 50 people could come to a center staffed by 10, or we'll see a lot more of the, the traveling caregiver will go. They'll help with uh, several things in, in one house for an hour, and then they'll move on to the next house and they'll see five or six or seven people in a day. So uh, really it's a combination of you know humans and robots and, and technology moving forward. So one thing, I don't know if, if that's as relevant in, in home healthcare as it is in care institutions, but it strikes me that uh, lifting heavy uh, patients and helping them, you know, uh, move around is a, is a big part of at least later state, latter stages of, of healthcare. Exoskeletons are kind of interesting that, you know, the, the body suits uh, or, or, you know, they have different form factors, but these kind of robotic devices that augment human strength. I know, you know, places like Lowe's and Home Depot are testing these out for their workers because they have to kind of, you know, on Amazon as well, you know, they're loading sometimes heavy loads and, and sometimes you're using still your, your body strength to do this. And some of these exoskeletons can give you 2x, 3x, 4x, you know, 10x strength. So it's like you put on a Superman suit and, uh, and you can, you know, carry out really interesting feats. Um, I mean, is that one, uh, would that be useful to have, uh, you know, in the healthcare market are, you know, is, is that a challenge? The fact that you, you know, you're straining your back, you're moving around, you're possibly going out to help someone, uh, and, and, you know, and they, uh, it's a big strain on people's physical, uh, strength to be a healthcare worker. Yeah. So that's a, a great thought. I, I think that, again, this is an area where the people who, who could really benefit from it today are the Home Depots and the Lowe's and the Amazon warehouse people and things like that. But as we think to the future, 
if we're able to innovate in those areas there, and then we can say, hey, if you know an elderly person can uh, relatively comfortably wear this supersuit, and and then they can control it, and basically that gives them uh, the ability to walk and get to the kitchen and get to the restroom on their own. Uh, I think that's the kind of of opportunity that gets presented by a market that's you know doubling or close to tripling in the next thirty years is that something like that could really take hold. That, that's exciting. I mean, there, there are more technologies we can talk about, but let's just uh, move to COVID for a second. What are some of the immediate impacts that COVID is having in the home healthcare market? What what are the, I don't know, the new precautions that need to be made? Uh, what are some of the immediate impacts? Yeah, so what's happened there is, so first of all, it's it's had an overall positive effect on the home care industry because people uh, view correctly that home care is more socially isolated let's say than having somebody in a group setting and and as i explained today it's mostly a one-on-one situation so if the same caregiver is coming every day it is um it's it's relatively safe and we've actually seen a growth in our home care rosters and a lot of our agencies have have gotten more people onto their roles as families have pulled people back to the home and out of assisted living and those types of things. But as far as the precautions, so uh, one of the things that happens is you'll have supervisory visits, let's say, where somebody's checking on the caregivers and the and the the individual. And that, of course, with COVID, we don't want one person going to 17 homes and maybe picking up the disease and sharing it with others. So we've seen a lot more uh, phone call-based support and telehealth. We've also seen pretty immediately as we put care plans in place where in addition to working with a home care caregiver and saying, hey, we really want to make sure you are helping with the, the dishes and the dressing and the grooming and the bathing. We, we have uh, checklists of you know, asking questions about if they're, uh, the person they're taking care of is exhibiting any symptoms that might uh, be indicative. Uh, we have you know, temperature checks and a lot of the other things that we're seeing in other places uh, are going on to you know, kind of protect the workers as well as protect the recipients of care. And, and again, I mean, more remote care and a little bit of emergence of telehealth. Uh, we've seen telehealth emerge everywhere and across the healthcare spectrum, but we've also seen telehealth starting to emerge in home care. And we're actually adding a telehealth component to the Ancoda software now. So tell me more about that, because what does telehealth mean in home healthcare? I mean, there are limitations both in the regulatory realm for sure, and in terms of what technology can accomplish. Uh, but I'm, I'm guessing kind of consults, consultations and initial kind of conversations for sure, uh, if they are carried over secure networks have, you know, are now allowed, right? For healthcare professionals in the U.S. under specific circumstances. But what are some of the things more, more long-term that you envision to be part of a healthcare package in, that, in this market? What kinds of specific services uh, can be put on, on a tele uh, platform? Yeah, for sure. So I, even in COVID and just talking about healthcare in general, most of what we've heard about as telehealth visits have been just phone calls. Uh, so really, I mean, the definition of telehealth is that you have people in remote places that are, you know, provi- uh, providing care using some type of technology and the basic technology is the telephone. And then of course, a, a better step up of technology is the ability to do it via a remote 
uh, meeting. And one of the things that they did during COVID is they, they took away some of the security restrictions and they said, you know, hey, if you could be talking to your people through Zoom or through FaceTime, you know, go ahead and do it for now. Whereas generally the healthcare industry is very uh, sensitive about personal privacy and things like that. So I think that that'll, I think that people will revert to saying, okay, we're not going to use uh, Zoom anymore, you know, and, and uh, that type of platform, we are going to move to secure and HIPAA compliant telehealth platforms. But I do think that we're, we're, we're I actually believe that Zoom has, uh, they have a specific HIPAA compliant uh, part of their platform now. So you could actually opt for it. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I get that. How do you stay up to date on all these exciting things in, in, in the healthcare market? So let's say you were some, you know, you were a listener uh, of mine and you're interested in tracking elderly care and what happens to it. Maybe you're a startup trying to innovate or you're interested in this or you're generally just super interested in what happens in in elderly care or in healthcare, how do you personally stay up to date? What do you read? Who do you trust? Who do you track? Is there, you know, two influencers that, you know, have everything on the button, you know, button down and you can just uh, read their tweets and, and feel like you know what's going on or is it not that simple? Well, it, it is a little bit of, as I said earlier, an underserved market that hasn't quite come to the spotlight, but it's, it's beginning to more and more. So I, I know there is one, organization called Aging 2.0. And they have conferences that are both regional and national. And that's where people who are innovating in aging uh, generally go to to try to get to a conference where a lot of the people are are focused on the aging space. There is one uh, consultant that you might consider for your show. Her name is Lori Orlov. And she has a uh, a blog and a website that's called Aging in Place Technology Watch. And so she is really a uh, very thorough researcher, came from one of the, um, I can't remember if it was, you know, Gartner or Forrester, one of the, one of the strong research groups. So she's a, she's a very strong researcher and objective uh, reporter of what's going on in, in uh, aging, you know, technologies and things like that. But I, I think that we're going to see a whole lot more emergence in a lot of areas. One, another one just that I could mention is that AARP, the American Association for Retired Persons is they're, they're trying to do more uh, innovation and focus on technology and the quality of life. And, and that's they, so they do have some, some nice resources there as well. Thanks. So as we're kind of coming to a close here, I wanted to ask you what, you know, where's Ken Accardi going next? What are, what are, what are some of your next challenges? I, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about your, you know, fantastic career, you know, going from GE to, to taking on these Israeli companies challenge. And, and then now with your, your startup, what, what are you seeing for yourself in the next decade? Where, what's gonna, you know, where are you innovating? What uh, are you staying with Encoda? You're building that platform. That's your kind of your main thing, or do you have other interests that are occupying your mind at the moment? Yeah. So, well, it's really interesting. I uh, am definitely sticking with Encoda for the short term, and we've uh, we've been around for six years, and we're we're into seven figures of revenue, and now we're 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 growing, but we're also starting to get inquiries of you know, eventually becoming part of something bigger. And uh, so I think that we probably will at, at some point in the, in the, you know, future, but not immediate future. Uh, but now you guess, have a corporate hat on again. Right. A little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, you know, a couple of the innovations we're doing just within Ancoda are we're, we're looking at the shortage of caregivers and 
my timing wasn't good with COVID, but really one of the big uh, products that we developed for this year is one for supporting adult day health centers. And again, if, if instead of sending 50 caregivers to 50 homes, if you could bring 50 uh, individuals into a day center where you could provide them a nice lunch and companionship and you could staff it with 10 or 12 people, I think that's one of the solutions. So we're looking at that type of innovation as well as I mentioned the telehealth and remote care. And then ultimately, uh, we, you know, I, I guess my passion in the future is, is more in this arena that I call population health, where we're really trying to say, okay, we have, you know, many people and we don't want to be bringing them all into hospitals and, you know, we want them to age and distance and, and, and that type of thing. So I, I guess that a lot of the ideas I have are how do you take this, these large populations of people and, be proactively notified when something's wrong with their health, but also help them to overcome social isolation and, and these other types of things that, that are going to be uh, more and more problems as the, as the uh, society ages. Thanks so much. We'll leave on that note with predictive population health and uh, uh, reducing social isolation through uh, all kinds of exciting new things that we uh We'll see that uh, are going to emerge and hopefully you'll be part of, uh, of creating, Ken. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You have just listened to episode 10 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of elderly care. Our guest was Ken O'Cardi, CEO and founder of Ancoda. My takeaway is that the future of elderly care and home care specifically is going to be shaped by predictive population health, which will prevent and intervene early rather than wait until it has to deal with chronic disease, treat the symptoms and endure the effects of aging. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.